to make a rich, smooth cold brew. Tim Horton steeps 100% Arabica beans for 16 hours. What could be richer than that? Well, uh... How about blending in swirls of sweet Irish cream? Rich enough? Ooh, I guess. Not quite, because Tim Hortons tops that cold brew with the cloud of sweet cold foam. Now, what could be richer than that? Nothing? Exactly. Irish cream cold brew with cold foam now at Tim Hortons. Or try cold foam on any of your Tim Hortons favorites. Modifications extra for a limited time at participating U.S. locations. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, and thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary solutions to today's unique challenges. Dear audience, you are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions, and we'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour, we'll address what to do when life doesn't go as planned, create an alchemical experience. If there's something last year has taught us, is that life is what happens while we're busy making other plans. Looking back to mid-2019, what we expected our lives to look like moving forward to 2020 and beyond is so far from what became our actual experience as to be laughable. All the plans we made based on how life had been became so much dust, leaving many of us reeling and uncertain as what to do next. How do we move forward amidst so much radical change? Is there a way to not only recover, but to evolve as a result of our shattered plans and dreams? Can we use this widespread disruption to create an alchemical outcome? With us this hour to discuss his amazing experience of letting go and letting life is Michael Shaw, author of A Story of Karma, finding love and truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. Michael lives to explore remote places around the world and share the depth and beauty of human connection. With over 20 years of global financial investment experience, Mike brings his business acumen and altruistic heart to help lead and support local and international mentorship, fundraising, and educational initiatives, including the education of girls and student mentorship in Nepal outdoor youth leadership for those facing barriers to access nature, and holistic indigenous leadership development in BC. His website Michael, on behalf of our listeners and myself, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Thank you very much, Gwilda, for having me on the show. 
It's a real pleasure. So what's your educational background, Michael? Yeah, I, well, I, I started uh, my, um, my early education at university in business, actually, but I had no intention to go into business. Um, I was actually wanting to become a creative writer when I was, uh, when I was in high school. I thought that's what I was going to be. And so all throughout high school and um, you know, middle school, creative writing was kind of my best subject. I was good in math, too. Math and creative writing were kind of my two top uh, subjects. But um, when, uh, when I got into university, I'll, I'll never forget uh, the first assignment that I had. And the teacher gave me this assignment of, of write about a beautiful place that, in, in nature <clears throat> that has touched you deeply. And so I thought, oh, wow, this is like the perfect assignment. This is the, the assignment of my dreams. And I just poured my heart into it. And I'll never forget handing it in, getting the paper back. I was anxious to see what the, what the professor would say. And I got a, um, I got an F on it. <laughs> I, I failed. Whoa. And yeah, it was totally shocking. And you know, when your heart sometimes goes into palpitations because, you know, I, I'd never failed anything and especially not in creative writing. That was my best subject. And my, my teachers in high school used to, you know, read my work in front of the, the class. And oftentimes my grade 12 teacher would, would tell me to submit my work to publications. And, and so, you know, getting a fail like that was just totally, just totally blindsided me. And so, um, so I thought, okay, that, that was kind of the beginning of the end of my interest in taking creative writing in university, because at the same time, uh, a little business that I had started back in high school when I was about 15, 16, um, has started to take off. It had started to, uh, to go through the roof, so to speak. And so I decided to kind of shift my lens over to, to the business faculty. And I thought, okay, what are they doing over there? And, and the more I looked into the faculty there, the more it was about thinking outside of the box. It was about, um, you know, here's your blank canvas. You get to create what you want. Whereas I felt in the creative writing program, ironically, in university, it was about kind of putting me in the box. So I thought, you know, I want to hang out with those people over in the business faculty. And, uh, and so that's where I switched my, my attention over to, uh, to that side of things. Right. So how did you go from there to supporting the education of girls and student mentorship in Nepal, of all places? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a story. Uh, it happened over time. So my wife, Chantal, and I, we, we met in university because of the business program. Actually, Chantal was uh, a classical violinist. <laughs> she, was, uh, she was training to become a classical violinist and uh, out at the Eastman School in uh, Rochester, New York. And, and that kind of went sideways because of the psychological... Uh, almost trauma that they they put on the students there at that time. I don't know if they still do that, but um, but she ended up getting like severe performance anxiety because of that, and she decided to switch her her. It just kind of took the joy out of the whole playing of the instrument, right? Um, right. And so she switched her major into business, and so that's where we met. And uh, and we you know nature and the mountains were kind of a focal point for us. It was a point where we we spent a lot of time together. We connected. Not that she was into extreme mountain climbing or anything like that. She was more into hiking at that time, but she gradually got into climbing as well. And so over the years, I remember one day, this was back in 2009, I believe, she came to me. She said, hey, Mike, um, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I thought, wow, okay, you know, that's, uh, you don't have to really twist my arm to climb anything. <laughs> but, uh, but I thought, okay, let's go do it. And, um, and she said, well, because she had been suffering from kind of these, this anxiety or, or migraines related to her anxiety, uh, she wanted to do it for a cause bigger than herself. And so we had both been volunteering for this local organization that helped youth get outside and through nature, uh, disadvantaged youth, so youth dealing with some sort of physical or mental barrier, uh, and through nature, 
you know, that would kind of help them overcome some of these obstacles. So we thought, okay, well, let's put a little team together and raise some money for that, uh, for that charity to help more, more youth. And this was the first time that I kind of climbed. Um, I've been climbing for, for over a decade at that point, but this was kind of the first time that I had actually climbed something for a cause, uh, you know, other than myself. Uh, there's just other than my, my own reasons for, for going out there. Just get there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we climbed Kilimanjaro and, um, and raised, uh, raised some money uh, for this charity. And on the back of that, that was a great success. So then we went down to Pico de Orizaba down in Mexico, uh, which is actually the third highest mountain in North America. And we put a little team together around that, did the same thing. And but in about 13 months, we had raised about $200,000 for this uh, this charity. Um, so, so that's kind of when we turned our attention to uh, to Nepal, because through those two expeditions, we ended up meeting a a, a friend almost um, yeah by chance. And uh, and he uh, when we sat down, um, he had told us about this little place. And this is all back in 2011. Uh, so he told us about this little place called the Lost Valley of Narfu. And the Lost Valley, it's in it's a remote valley in the Nepal Himalaya. Um, it's it, it had been closed off to the outside world for generations. Uh, at that point, it had just been opened up um, to the outside world. And I had wanted to go to Nepal for, um, you know, since I was a teenager, actually, since I was about 15. Uh, I don't know what it was, or I didn't know what it was at that time. Something in my very core wanted to be there. I felt almost like a, like a calling, um, but I never quite knew what I wanted to do there. I didn't. I knew I didn't want to do something too touristy, so to speak. Um, I wanted to go somewhere off the beaten path. And so when this opportunity came up, uh, when our friend was introducing us to this lost valley, uh, I thought, you know, I was looking at some of his pictures, and I thought wow, this is, this is it. This is where I'm meant to go. And, and Chantal and I, we kind of looked at each other and it was kind of a decision in itself. And so, so that was the opening to us discovering more about the, the challenges of the children over there, particularly in these high mountain areas. When you, let me interrupt you here. When, mm, yeah. when you first saw pictures of the place and what an opportunity to be one of the first ones to get in there after it's been isolated for so long so there's mm. still a lot of um uh unpolluted uh cultural stuff left there mm. when you first saw the place visually did you have a visceral response to it well it was uh yeah that, that's a that's a very interesting question because i remember getting into this valley and you know this valley it's it's called a bayul a bayul is um it's tibetan for sacred valley and it's the Dalai Lama himself has said these bayouls are places where the physical and spiritual realms actually coalesce closer mm -hmm. together. So I remember going through this one gate and uh, in, in, into it was kind of the entrance into the, this part of the Lost Valley. And you have to imagine at this point we had been trekking for almost a week. Uh, we, went, we gained significant elevation. We were up at around 14,000 feet above sea level. We were in these remote um, mountain areas where you had these sweeping glaciers uh these 7000 meter himalayan peaks uh wow. the people now, now by gate by gate do you mean a physical gate or a spiritual gate well that that's that's the thing i think it was both uh it was a physical gate um very prominent physical gate uh probably had stood there for for centuries um there was scripture in a beam of wood uh, just on the above the archway 
And I remember asking our, our guides, we had some, some Sherpa guides and, and I asked them, you know, what, what does it say? And they said, this is, this writing is neither Nepali or Tibetan. Um, they couldn't oh. actually read it. So, um, which was quite fascinating. So, but I remember when we, when we stepped through the gate and we all felt it, our, we had a team, a little team there, um, of five of us. And I, it felt as though we were stepping into an orb, like into a, another realm of some sort, um, you know, colors shifted, sensations deepened, uh, you know, Chantal, she had actually, she had a, a suffered from a, a severe migraine attack a couple of days before getting there. And At that uh, altitude I can imagine. Oh yeah. 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 No, it oh. was, uh, and, and we're out there, right? I mean, you can't, it's not like you can just <laughs> rest or, or, or shut out, um, light and, and, and sound and that sort of thing. So, and we had to keep moving. Um, so that was a whole nother story in, in itself. Cause I thought maybe Chantal and I would have to turn around and, and that was right when I was starting to my entire body, I could still feel vibrating from the very, uh, you know, from the very place that we were in. And, uh, and, and I thought, you know, I was kind of torn between, are we going to have to turn around here? Um, so anyway, so we, yeah, we get through this gate and, um, and, and Chantal, she said to me, Mike, you know, I feel like I had had one of the lowest lows of my life. And now I'm feeling like I'm having the, the highest high of my life. And, um, and, and that was kind of the feeling that we had. I remember one of our other, uh, teammates he's this uh, professor geomorphology professor uh eric and he came through the gate he just started pouring down with tears uh he just oh, yeah, and wow. he turned to me he said um he said i don't deserve to be here um you know so it was a very uh like you said earlier um the area i think the vibration of the area had not has not yet that, well at that time it's changed now this was back in 2012 at that time i don't think it had been touched yet the vibration of the area hadn't been touched yet by the modern, uh, modern world. And isn't that what we're confronted with now is possibly transmuting the modern world back to that kind of a vibration? Yeah, that it's a, I, it's something I think about often because you think about where we're going and it's almost like everything is speeding up faster and faster and faster, right? We've got more communication. We've got to do, we feel this is in more in the modern world, like more in the Western world, we feel like the pressure to do more, uh, to produce more and um, to have more maybe. Um, and it just seems like it's very contrary to this idea of, of, of exactly like you say, when we were, when we were in that Valley with the people there, we spent several days, you know, being with the people living with them, uh, being in, with them in their homes, a little, imagine these little stone homes, um, single rooms built up, kind of etched up the mountainside as though the, these massive peaks were almost squeezing the life out of this place. And, uh, and yet these people were some of the most hospitable, compassionate people I'd ever met. You know, they'd invite us in, they, we'd prepare meals together. We, would, we couldn't speak each other's languages. They spoke a, a, a unique dialect just for that particular area. But, um, but we spoke with our eyes. You know, we spoke with wow. uh, other well, ways. We're, right? going, we're going to have to take a commercial break. But on the other side, I would really like to get up into that communication that you were dealing with there, because I think it's one of our keys, isn't it? Um, however, it is time for that commercial break. Michael and I will return shortly, so don't go away. You're listening to Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. Hello again, this is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. To all of our faithful and thoughtful listeners, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about transforming the unplanned into opportunity? Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. Speaking of which, this in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled Personal Empowerment During Times of Upheaval. LT shares... If ever there were a time we need solid, altruistic leadership, that time is now. This episode gave me the courage to become such a leader. Thanks, LT. So true. It's ultimately up to each of us to lead the way forward. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org. Listen to the episode entitled Personal Empowerment During Times of Upheaval and let us know what you think. Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions, and we will share them on the next show. With us this hour discussing Letting Life Guide Us is Michael Shaw. His website, michaelshaw.com. Now that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-H-O-W.com. Michael, we were just getting into the communicating with, um, with the people there without uh, a common language. Would you continue, please? Yes, absolutely. So, um, as I was saying, you know, it was just being being with the people there. Um, you know, being able to 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 observe them and learn from them, and and kind of we would prepare meals together and and eat together. And oftentimes, you know, we'd be in these little stone homes, uh, no bigger than perhaps um, the size of uh, I don't know a traditional North American bedroom or something. But um, but you'd have you know twenty of twenty of us kind of packed into one room with the villagers and. And, and again, we couldn't speak each other's language because of the di- they have this unique dialect in their village, but we would speak with our eyes and we'd speak with kind of motions and, and, and just the vibrations of our voices, perhaps, and, and all these subtle, subtle ways that, that, you know, perhaps we take for granted in our, in our modern world of, of communication. Um, you, you know, we, we tend to be much more in our heads in terms of deciphering or, or dissecting what we say, the words the actual words, um, literally, uh, but in that environment, it was more so about 
the subtleties, the nuances, the, the looks, you know, the eyes. Um, so it just brought me right back to some of the more fundamental ways of, of communicating that, uh, you know, that, that we've, I think, kind of lost a little bit in our, in our modern ways. How, how do you think uh, that relates to communicating through the heart, dropping into the heart and communicating from there? Yeah, I think that's a very important point because it, by feeling the words, by being, um, you know, the communication, not just sort of expressively through, through these, you know, these words, uh, I think that brings us much more into feeling, to being, you know, much more sort of heart-centric. And so that, I think, opens up a whole other level of communication, of connection, human connection as well. Um, and, and so, and the fact that we were in this place, this Bayul, this sacred valley, where we were naturally kind of feeling this greater openness to our hearts, um, I think that all was a, a natural conduit to to kind of helping us all connect more closely with each other, um, but also with ourselves. How do you think that gate played into shifting you out of the analytical mind into the heart? Well, yeah, so what happened, I had this idea because I, I talked about this friend that we had sat down with and was looking through the pictures. And, and one of the pictures that I came across when, when we were back in the restaurant in Vancouver trying to plan this trip was this picture of this pyramidal mountain. And that's kind of what, what really caught my my attention because as a mountaineering fanatic, I, I, some mountains, they just speak to me very, very, almost at a very soul level. And so when I saw the picture of this mountain, it was almost like this white pyramid uh, just coming out of the the, the stark and, and stony earth. And I thought, in a heartbeat, I thought, I have to find this mountain. I have to try and climb mm -hmm. it. And so, you know, so when we went to this valley, we we found, or I found the uh, the mountain, and my two Sherpa companions and me, and we spent two days of reconnaissance trying to find it. When we found it, I mean, when I saw it in real life, it was the most mind-blowing thing I, I can ever <laughs> explain. But um, but it was also at that point where things started to unravel, things started to fall apart. Um, you know, for example, we were caught in a snowstorm at 17,000 feet, and one of my gear bags with my climbing gear, all my climbing gear in it, um, the mule that was carrying it took off. So things started um, kind of falling apart and it, it sort of forced me to reevaluate um, these different aspects of who I am um, because since I was 15 I've wanted to climb in the Himalaya and I thought like that was part of my very identity that was part of who I thought I was and now at the very doorstep of being able to fulfill that dream uh, that I've had for so long I was in my early 30s at that point um, that that entire dream was starting to fall apart so it was almost like part of my identity was falling apart and um, and so I, you know, I, I had to kind of ask these questions like, why, why am I here in the Himalaya? Like, what am I here to do? Is there a deeper reason why I'm here? And it kind of, um, it almost felt as though everything outside of me was, was kind of guiding me in a in a different direction. Everything inside yeah, of me it, was wanting to to kind of keep going towards the mountain, but everything outside of me was like, no, there's a there's a it was almost like doorways open opening up, you know. Kind we of have other plans. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We have like other plans. And yeah. it sounds almost like a shamanic death in a way, in a, a death mm -hmm. to an old identity, a death to old goals, so that you could open up for the guidance you were getting from that magical land. Did you experience yeah. it as that? 
Yeah, yeah, very much so. I didn't understand it at the time, but over time, I actually learned this word uh, very much similar to that, this Tibetan word called the bardo. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with that word. Um, Absolutely. But, it's that place between life and death. Exactly. The place of transition, right? And the Tibetans actually mm -hmm. believe that we have many incarnations through not only from lifetime to lifetime, but actually throughout one lifetime. So mm -hmm. and, and with every sort of incarnation, you know, part of us, we, we enter that bardo where we get to choose, you know, which part of us do we want to carry forward into our next incarnation of the same life? And which parts of us no longer serve us? Which parts of us do we want to let go of? And so I was actually going through that bardo in the mountains in this Bayul Valley, this sacred valley. Um, I, I couldn't see it at the time. I think, you know, it's one of those things where when you're so close to something, you know how you have trouble focusing on it. Um, but after the fact, looking back on it, I was absolutely going through that transitionary state where part of me, so to speak, had actually died up there on the mountain and, and part of me was being reborn. Reborn into what? At that time, I didn't. I didn't know, didn't but know. I, I, now, I chose to trust in it. Mm. <laughs> the bardo is, is usually exemplified by kind of like a life review. Um, mm. What has and hasn't worked? What do you feel good about you did? What do, don't you feel? Which direction do we go next because this is over? Did you experience any of that? Yeah, on, on, on various levels. Um, there were a few things, a few uncanny things that happened. I mean, first of all, the kind of connections that were being formed by by me being hunkered down in that village of Fu, which is the most remote outpost, I met some very interesting people, people who, you know, almost felt like there was a familial, some sort of familial connection mm -hmm, with. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, one particular gentleman, Sonam, his name was Sonam Dorje. He had left the village when he was 14 and he had just come back at that time. He hadn't seen his family or village in seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, he had to mm -hmm. study. Uh, he had to get an education. Uh, all the way down in India. That was his only option to get education at that time. And so he had just come back. Uh, he was 21 then. And, and, and we, our paths happened across at that exact moment. And we would, we kind of became friends because I was forced to hunker down there and he was back there visiting his family. And, uh, and we started taking these daily walks together. And I remember one walk that we had, um, we were, we kind of passed these four elder, uh, elder women um, sitting against this rock wall. And one of them started looking at me very intensely and she started firing off something in, in her own dialect and pointing at me and very intensely. And, and I thought, you know, I, I turned to Sonam, I said, what, what, is, what is she saying? And, and he kind of glanced at me, he said, you know, she's actually saying that you were one of us in your previous life. Uh, she's saying that you were actually my grandfather. Um, and, and just things like that kept happening over and over and over again, like that recognition in different ways, um, which got me thinking is there something, is there some other reason why I'm here? Is there a deeper force kind of calling me? Um, rather than, you know, perhaps it wasn't the mountain that was calling me to go climb it. Perhaps the mountain was a, was a beacon, you know, this white pyramid beacon calling me back to experience. a place. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm, amazing. And the fact that it was pyramid shaped is like, yeah, oh, I know. Oh. Yeah. I'm, I'm goosebumping as we say. Yeah, I, I, me too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, um, tell, tell us a little bit about the team of people that went with you on the expedition. Yeah. So one of the things that we decided to do when we were early in the planning stage, um, we understood from our friend there that because the valley was now being opened up to the outside world, it was going it was going to be uh, experiencing some unprecedented change. So, you know, social change, cultural change, because at the time when it was closed off, there was no electricity, there was no access to outside communication, no Internet, anything like that, no radio even. So 
any information that got into the valley would have had to be brought in either from from people like us coming in with our smartphones or from the odd villager perhaps who's who leaves the village for a time and then comes back like Sonam Dorje. Um, but other than that, they had not even any books uh, other than some scriptures in the in the monasteries. So no, really no information. The, the whole village was kind of isolated. The whole valley rather was kind of isolated on its own. And so when we when we were going through these pictures and we, when we when we started understanding that it was going to experience some unprecedented change, we thought, okay, well let's um, we're kind of on that that precipice of that change, right? So let's let's um, put a little team of artists together, and and try and observe and learn from the people there, and kind of capture a moment in time while while we can th through this unique um, time change. So um, so we we had a uh, a nature artist, uh, biologist. We had a uh, a Polish professor who's a photographer, and we had this musician. Um, and then Chantal and I, we were kind of doing some, some of our, some of the filming. So, but it was a very <laughs> mishmash of a team. <laughs> it was, you know, if you, if you kind of put us beside each other, we would look like a total mashup. Um, we had, again, like Chantal and I in our trim fitting sort of climbing wear, uh, this Polish professor, we had this you know, musician who kind of looked like this neo hippie, um, and uh, like his blonde hair wrapped in a purple bandana and pointed goatee. And then this uh, cow cowboy from Calgary, uh, where this he'd wear this uh, big brown uh, brimmed uh, cowboy hat with a handlebar mustache, and you know. So, um, but we were all kind of united and called by this um, this lost valley. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? It's like if you can listen, and if you can follow your promptings and what life is telling you, it pulls the most amazing people into your world, doesn't it? I agree. Yeah, yeah. It kind of. Um, it's kind of letting go of expectations, right? You know, we, we set of it because oftentimes we tend to look at life like a lens with a lens and particularly in our, in our modern world here, we, we try and come up with a plan <laughs> for, for next week or next year or, or our entire life in some cases. Um, but when, I think when we let go of those expectations and let go of, of those sort of plans, so to speak, to a degree, um, the most beautiful, as you say, the most beautiful people, the most beautiful things can, can start uh, coming together. You know, another synchronicity that I'm picking up here is how both you and your wife had to walk away from the Western idea of artistry, of mm -hmm. writing, of performing, of violin, of music, and go into something very analytical, um, only to emerge and bring back that love for it into the team that you chose. Would you speak to that mm -hmm. briefly? Yeah, yeah, no, it is actually, it's a fascinating point because you think about it, you know, both Chantal and I are very creatively minded. And I think that's why I initially got into creative writing. That's why she went into music. Um, and, but it's funny because both of those arts were actually, it was kind of the, the reverse, you know, you'd think that they would kind of promote more creativity, but it was actually the, the complete opposite. It was actually trying to put structure in place where there was no structure before. Um, mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. whereas business, you know, as you said, could be perceived as being very analytical, but I found actually the exact opposite of that. It was, um, you know, both Chantal and I being naturally creative, you know, that's kind of where the innovations were happening. That's kind of where the solutions were being explored and new boundaries. And, you know, you look at some of the right. things that we're dealing with right now, um, whether it's from electric cars to the way we communicate over our smartphones. I mean, all those things came out of this. Innovation and in artistry. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. We're going to we're going to have to take another quick pause. We will pick up with this on the other side. Michael and I will return to our very interesting discussion shortly. So you stay right there. 
This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire leading-edge, information-packed past episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Golda Wiecka, and the other things that I offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. Our guest this hour is Michael Shaw. We're speaking about following the intelligence of life. His website, michaelshow.com. Michael, you were just getting into the um, people that you were up there with and how the, the arts seemed to play mm. a very important part of what you were bringing there. How did you come to that? What, what drove that decision? Yeah, I think it was kind of a culmination of everything that we had experienced up until that point. So I talked about how Chantal and I, we had done these... Um, these kind of fundraising expeditions to Kilimanjaro and Tarpico Zaba and, and which were good. And, and they kind of raised some funds for that much, um, you know, that charity that was doing very good work uh, in terms of getting the youth outside. Um, but we kind of noticed that with those two expeditions, we just sort of came together, we climbed a mountain, we raised some money, and then we kind of all went our own separate ways again. And so and we thought we, got, we conquered <laughs> and then we left. Yeah. It's kind of like this idea of like, okay, well we had these very deep, um, moments and, and the kind of life-changing moments and at the same same time we just sort of all then went back to our our daily lives so to speak and so um so we thought with with nepal and because nepal i think had been calling me since i was from a very young age uh since i was a teenager i just felt this uh this sense and Chantal felt it as well where why don't we try and do something that's not necessarily about fundraising but let's do something that's kind of much deeper involving these these kind of artistic talents and and kind of you know, learning and observing from these people and sort of looking at that through different lenses, whether it was through music, whether it was through photography, film, art, you know, nature art, and, and kind of seeing what emerges from that, right? It's seeing what emerges from those, those unique lenses. It's like you both came, um, or all of you came, with these unique talents that came together in that magical moment to create something new. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Would, would, would you please explain the process of letting go of your original goals and embracing a new direction? I mean, we're all being confronted with that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, exactly. I mean, it was, it was hard. I mean, now that I look back, I can piece together all the different, um, the different elements and, and how thing, one thing led to the other and, and how it kind of led to this much deeper fulfilling experience that we can talk about, but of meeting this little girl. Um, but at the time, it was, it felt like a train wreck. I mean, it felt like I was going through this tornado of, you know, why is this happening? And, and why, where is this, where, where are these doorways, these opening doorways kind of leading me? And, and I, I felt like the only thing I could, I could choose two things. One is I could choose to continue to force my way forward in terms of what I think should be the way in terms of what, you know, has traditionally been the way that I've thought 
you know, that would be my life path. But, um, and then the second way was, no, you know what, let go of that. Um, trust in these unfolding of events. And, and, and you don't know where it's going to lead you, but you have to trust that it's going to lead you in the right place. And I think if we look at, you know, one thing I've learned about spending time in nature and the mountains, I think nature has, we, we oftentimes think about nature as having a total random randomness to it, but it actually doesn't. Everything has its place. Everything has its sequence. Uh, everything happens for a reason in nature, right? Things grow in, the, in, in, in a particular way and it, everything is sort of interconnected to everything else around it. So, and I think that the same thing happens um, much in the same way for, for the way we live and, and our lives connected in this greater, you know, in a greater way, uh, even though we can't really see it at the time. So, but by tapping into that and the more we tap into that, the more it becomes easier for us. And I think that's kind of, what I was really learning and, and tapping into when we were out there in this valley. So you're, you're speaking of nature and I love that. Of course, it's right up my alley, but how important and what, what, what role did actually being uh, very intimate with nature, like you were in such a remote area, how, what role did that play in your ability of, um, of embracing a new direction and actually seeing that that's what was needed? Yeah. So that, it was like the whole valley was guiding me um, and tapping in, like listening to that, that opened up the most meaningful, fulfilling experience of my life. So what happened was we, we had left the village of this little village of Fu. We had gone down to this other little village of Nar because that's where everything was guiding me. And, um, and I would not have village, I, I would not have visited that other village of Nar had I tried to force my way and climb the mountain. Uh, I just wouldn't have the time, but because we had now more time, um, we were able to go to visit this other little village. And, and, and so in that village, I discovered that there was this little stone school. Um, and everywhere that we were el elsewhere in the valley, there were no schools. The kids were just kicking cans around. I understood, you know, in our, my conversations with Sanam Dorje that, you know, how important outside education was for the kids. Um, because by the time the kids are six or seven years old, they would have to start working in the fields, very hard labor. Uh, it's pure survival out there. By the time some of the girls are, are, you know, 15, 16 at that time, they would start getting married, having children of their own. So that was kind of the life out there. And so when we caught wind that there was this other little school or this little school in this little village of Nar, I thought, you know, we got to we got to go visit this. And um, and so we get to the school and there's an open courtyard, 17 kids. The kids had pulled their benches out to be in the light and the warmth of the sun uh, because in the classrooms, there's no electricity. It's too dark and cold. And um, and so the kids, you know, kind of had like the raggedy clothes unraveling at the sleeves, uh, sunburnt cheeks to the point where they had blisters, snot dripping down from their noses, that sort of thing. But uh, just the most unbelievable scene. And at the head of the class was this little girl, a little seven year old girl uh, teaching English numbers. And that's kind of that's where everything started to open up in terms of um, really understanding what this journey was about for me. How did that little seven-year-old girl end up being the teacher? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a very good question. So we found the teacher, and he was kind of looming in the back. He, um, he, he comes from a totally different part of Nepal. You know, two weeks away, his family, his people are from, mm -hmm. from that place. And, mm -hmm. and he told us that he actually felt like he had been banished to the end of the earth. And so he's not, <laughs> really, not really any desire to teach. And, and so I think that's part of the reason why this little girl was up there. Um, but you know, she had so much poise, so much confidence. And there, we had, I mean, we had seen hundreds of kids up until that point, each one kind of cuter than the next, but, but there was something markedly different about this little girl, something kind of connected is almost as though I felt like there was some sort of a karmic connection between us. And, um, 
And so the kids, funny enough, they caught sight of Michael, our musician, uh, his guitar slung over his shoulder. And, um, and, and they had never seen a guitar before, let alone heard one. And so, um, so they kind of, you know, you could tell that they were very eager for him to play some music, right? They have no instruments up there in these places. Um, and so the teacher thought, you know, okay, well, let's get some music going because it would help pass the time as well, I think. Um, so Michael, he's a bit of an entertainer. And he went up there and started teaching these kids this jazzed up rendition of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And uh, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, how are these kids going to catch on? But they did because um, there were all these melodic twists and whatnot. And, um, and then the teacher got motivated. He brought out this Nepali drum and he wanted the kids one at a time to dance in front of us. And he started with this little girl, this little seven-year-old girl who was so confidently teaching the numbers before. But, um, but then when she was singled out and kind of forced to dance in front of us, which we thought was kind of strange and awkward, you could just sort of see her crumbling from the inside. You know, she started crying, like almost internally crying and just looked totally petrified. And, and Chantal, I think, you know, I think something was triggered for Chantal because of, I mentioned about her performance anxiety and the trauma that she felt when she was oh, younger. Yeah, of um, and, and so when she saw, maybe she saw something of herself, you know, up there trying to, you know, being forced to perform again. And so she just marched up there um, beside this little girl and just started doing her best impression of this traditional Nepali dance. Uh, not that she knew how to do a traditional Nepali dance, but the little girl um, forgot about everybody watching, uh, focused solely on Chantal, their eyes locked. And oh. this little girl was trying to copy all of Chantal's improvised moves. Meanwhile, Chantal's saying to her, like, no, no, you teach me. And, and the two of them, I mean, imagine the two of them dancing in almost like these two little spirits in their own world uh, in front of these 7,000 meter peaks and it, it felt like time just stopped for a moment. Um, and, and, I, and that's kind of where things, that, that synchronicity that we talk about, that's kind of when those over, the overlap of, of, of things just sort of felt almost like two puzzle pieces being locked into place. Um, and, and isn't there kind of a deja vu feeling about it as well? Yeah, almost exactly. Almost like, you know, things like, ah, okay, that, like when two things just sort of shift in a way where it just suddenly everything makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's kind of what I felt. And I started to feel that in that moment. Where did that lead you? So, yeah. So after the kids got out of school, they found where we were staying. Uh, this little girl came rushing in and just leaped into Chantal's arms. Um, Chantal told me afterwards that it was the biggest heart to heart hug she had ever had from a child. Oh. And, uh, and then the little girl, she turned to me and she just leaped into my arms with a force of, um, I mean, she was tiny, but it wasn't her physical force, but the force of love that just hit me right in the heart. And I'll never forget her little heartbeat. You know, I, I felt it in a moment, like right against mine. And, uh, and her little hands um, <laughs> just grabbing the back of my neck. And, and in that moment, I just felt like, okay, this is the reason why I'm not climbing the mountain. And, mm -hmm. and so that's when Chantal and I, we started asking all these questions like, you know, what happens to a little girl? We understood some from Sanam Dorje in terms of, you know, the kids, how tough it was. Um, but we, we, we wanted to understand, okay, what is the plan for karma? Like what's going to happen to this little girl? And, and so we wanted to, to meet with her fa family and her parents and, and, and just kind of understand, what, yeah, this little girl who's so eager to learn because all of her friends rushed in and they started asking us for candy and chocolate and whatnot. And we didn't have any, but, but when, when they, discovered we didn't have any this little girl came back she pulled out of her sweater a little card with english uh words on it 
And she just kind of motioned to Chantal, you know, can you speak these words to me? So that's, Chantal and I, we just looked at each other like this is almost a decision in itself. Like how do we, what do we do here, right? I mean, not doing anything is still a decision. So we wanted to understand what's going to happen to this little girl. We understood that um, we eventually met with, with her family, like with her, her mom. Actually, her father was away with the yaks, so he couldn't be there with us. But we were able to find their home and meet with their with this little, her name is Karma. We discovered with Karma's mother, and um, and some of her family, and we discovered that education for them is the biggest blessing that they could ever hope for and ask for for their children, particularly for their their girls, because their girls. Um, and there was a saying that they have up there that that we learned that they'd rather their kids have a pencil in the hand versus a strap around the forehead. Uh, because mm-hmm. the Nepalis, mm-hmm. if you imagine, mm-hmm. you know, that's how they carry the heavy load. I tried carrying a heavy load that way when I was over there. It's very, very hard. Um, yes, you but, have to uh, start start very young and develop the muscles on the neck. <laughs> that's right, yeah. It actually yeah. changes the whole physiology of your forehead and everything. But um, uh, but yeah, so anyway, they, they, their dream was to be able to have their girls educated um, beyond the village education uh, because it would give them more choice, right? It would, if they want to come back to the village and... Um, and live there and have a family there, that's that's fine, but it should be on their own terms. Um, they, the, the family told me at a later date that they just want their girls to be able to to dream bigger. You know, if you imagine in the village, they've, ne- they've never seen a bicycle. As I said, like all the information that was available had to come in from the outside world. So um, there were no even not even any books. It's not like there was a library there where she could just start reading novels and things. Uh, or newspapers or whatever, uh, no access to internet. All of that didn't exist at that time. So, so they just wanted their girls to be able to dream bigger. And through education outside of the village, education, um, they would they would be able to have access to that. Well, we have a little bit of time left in this segment, but one thing I'd like to bring up that we'll probably have to finish on the on the um, other side of a commercial break is, okay, there's wonderful things, and we, we're all big on education on this side of the world, um, but doesn't that very education, and particularly if you're not careful what you offer, absolutely pollute and destroy the beauty that's there? Yeah, so that that's, that's the question that Chantal and I, we were kind of struggling with over the course of the next eight years um you know what how because on the one hand their family the father actually said to me uh two things he would like for his children uh one was that he would like his girls to to never forget where they're from never forget mm-hmm. their dharma uh their culture which i totally agree with and that was very important to Chantal and me but um the other thing he said was that he wanted the girls to be able to kind of be under our wings so to speak um oh, nice. so that they could move farther and faster yeah, exactly. Okay, well, it is time for that commercial break, but we'll pick up on that on the other side because it's a big topic. Uh, Michael and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion, so don't go away. This is Mission Evolution on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. 
To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us at info at missionevolution.org. I'm sure we'll all enjoy them. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the other things I offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. This hour, we're fortunate enough to be sharing thoughts with Michael Shaw. His website, michaelshaw.com. That's Michael, S-C-H-A-U-C-H, dot com. Michael, we were just getting into uh, introducing education and how... You chose to do that, uh, probably all of you chose together, in such a way that it minimizes the distortion that you bring into such a pure environment and at the same time empowers the children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things we discovered from the parents was that, as I mentioned, they really would like uh, their girls to be um, to have access to this education beyond the village education because um, that would give them the more choice. So Chantal and I, when we, we asked Karma, we said, you know, is this something you would like? This is back in 2012 when we were sitting around their little dung field stove in their home and, uh, and karma said she would, yes, she would very much like um, to have education. And so we thought, okay, for as long as, um, as that is the case, we can help and we can work with your parents to try and find the best solution. So when Chantal and I left the village, we thought, Oh my goodness, what just happened? We didn't know what to do. We knew enough to know that the school had to be aligned with her culturally um, because in the mountains, they're actually more Tibetan Buddhist. And so in, in most of Nepal is actually more Hindu and, and, and they operate more on the caste system. So the way that they look at uh, the mountain dwellers, they actually look at them as more indigenous. Um, so they're, they're kind of, they fall on the lower end of the caste. So we knew that if karma was placed in any school in Nepal, um, there could be rise for severe racial discrimination. So we thought, okay, the school had to be aligned with her culturally and her, and her ethnicity. And then also just again, to foster the, those Tibetan uh, roots, uh, the Buddhism, the Dharma. Uh, so, so we couldn't. We got back to Kathmandu. We couldn't find anything. We got back to um, to Canada. We kept searching for over a month, and we're almost losing hope. Um, and then one day, Chantal, late night, she kind of she says, "Mike, you know, you got to get in here, check this out." And she found this school, SMD school, Sri Mangal Dip School for Himalayan children. Uh, it said, you know, for education for the lost children of the Himalaya, the lost oh, children, wow. because these children are so in such far pockets, like where Karma and her little sister Pemba are from, that they just get forgotten about. They just fall through the cracks. Um, so, and on the picture or on the front page uh, was a picture of, you know, kids similar to the kids we had seen at that school in NAR uh, those years ago. So, um, so we thought, oh, we gotta, you know, we gotta check this out. Who founded this school? Well, we found out that it was founded by this Tibetan Lama uh, who had fled Tibet in the 50s and he had started the school specifically for these kids so that they could get a secular education, but that they would also cultivate their Tibetan roots so that they could then go back perhaps to their village or help their villagers or their people in some ways. So anyway, he started this whole school for that. So we thought this is perfect. Um, we wrote the school at once and about a week went by, we heard back from the school director and she said, thank you for, for connecting and, and thank you for sharing, um, you know, beautiful story. Um, but I have to tell you that we have 500 kids at this school right now. We're busting at the seams. We have 400 kids on the wait list. Um, we have kids being dropped off on the stairs that we have to turn away. Um, and because of all this, there's only one person who can admit new kids into this school. And that is this 80 plus year old Tibetan Lama, the founder. And I remember reading her note and I just felt like, 
I was just being dropped down this black abyss or something. Like, why are there so many barriers stacked against this one little girl in this little village way out there in the mountains who just wants to learn? Um, but Chantal had included our, e or like our address in the email signature, and the school director said at the very end, she said, oh, P.S., uh, by the way, I see that you're in Vancouver in Canada. You may be interested to know that this Tibetan Lama um, is recovering from an illness right now at his monastery in a place called Richmond, which was a 25-minute drive from our home. <laughs> Life having its way with you again. Yes. yes, exactly. So, you know, all these synchronicities, like I said, I mean, just I couldn't make this stuff up. But um, anyway, we, we, we were able to see him and he wasn't seeing anybody, but we were able to see him. And, um, and long story short, he, he, he agreed to admit karma into the school. And then and eventually a little Pemba um, got into the school as well. And, and we've been going back every eight to 10 months. So this was back in 2012. And so we've been going back every eight to 10 months over the next eight years to um, to grow the, our relationship together, you know, be with Karma and Pemba and their family, their parents, and, and kind of almost like um, co-parenting these two little girls, uh, bringing both sides, uh, tradition, modernity, bringing it together. Uh, because again, you know, the modern world is encroaching everywhere around the world as we speak, even into their villages as we speak. And we actually went back there in 2017 and it was just mind-blowing this the changes that had happened uh you know now they have uh, mobile phone tower they have you know access to internet they have um you know toilet they didn't have even toilets before now they have that they have more electricity they have a tv with one station so so the modern world is coming into these places um we can't really stop that uh, nor i don't think is that the best thing because with that comes other benefits as well like improved infrastructure you know and things like that yeah what I love is the way that you guys were so mindful to include spirituality and, and the type of spirituality that um, these children are indoctrinated into, into their education. How mm -hmm. important do you think that is? It's hugely important. You know, for example, we, we had a, we actually went back, as I mentioned, in 2017 to have a conversation with the parents and, um, and the parents actually decided they, they would like the girls, if possible, to have an education and culture uh, exchange. You know, kids, it's something normal for kids or more normal for kids in, in the modern world to, to have these education exchanges. But they thought, is it possible for their girls to have an education exchange to come to Canada just to see what this part of the world is like? You know, they know the village, they know Kathmandu. Can they see this part of the world too? And so, yeah, I, I thought, let's try. I, I can't make any promises to be honest, it took a small miracle to get them student visas to be able to come here. That's a whole other story. But well, it um, seems like you've been dealing in miracles all along. Though, <laughs> <haven't you? laughs> I mean, life is a miracle, I suppose, if we yeah, look at that for way. Sure. Uh, for the sure. fact that you and I are even talking here. But um, uh, but yeah, so when the girls were here, I, you know, was, there was all these, it's kind of in the details, um, but very, very important, like you said. You know, for example, um, I'll just give you a few examples. You know, Karma, um, she enjoys teaching. So one of the things she did when she was here, uh, they were, they, the girls were at the Squamish Waldorf School. And sometimes Karma would go into the, with the kindergarten students to, you know, to kind of teach them a little bit or help the kindergarten teacher. And, and the kindergarten teacher said to me afterwards, she said, just by Karma being in the classroom, the whole vibration of the kids just came down, like just calmed right down. Uh, just by she being her heart, being there. heart and nature with her, doesn't she? The, the, exactly, yeah, yeah. And yes. uh, 
I remember another time um, we were running around for something. And, by the way, Chantal and I became parents overnight, which is another whole other story. Challenge, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, our, the, what these girls taught us and our minds expanding. Um, but yeah, so I remember one day we were we were rushing around the house as it is, and and we were late for an event or something. And I said, "Girls, you know, you got to get our shoes. You got to get our jackets on." And and I remember little Pemba. She was ten years old at this time. Uh, little Pemba. She grabbed my arm. She said, "Mike," she said, "If if we were to behave like this in my village." everybody would think that we are sick. Before we close this segment, mm. I really want to get your take on how you see our your experience applying to the drastic change of plans we're all facing at this time, you know, due to COVID-19 and the numerous other challenges that we've encountered in 2020. How, how can your experience help us bridge our situation? Well, I think anytime something like this changes or challenges our worldview or challenges our expectations, it sort of shakes it up. It forces us or it empowers us, I should say, to go deeper within, uh, to explore, to expand. Right. So I think that's what it's doing for us. It's allowing us the opportunity to take what we thought we knew and just shake it up and say, OK, what like we talked about with the Bardo or with that sort of that process, that transformation. You know, what do I want to carry forward now? Like what's going to continue to serve me given the new path? And what no longer serves me? You know, what do I now have the opportunity to let go of as we move forward? How can we reframe our concepts to help embracing this letting go? That's, yeah, that's an intriguing question. I, I would say just from my own experience, it's through the deep human connection with others. I think the more, what I've learned from Karma and Pemba and their family, and just this whole experience, this whole journey into Nepal and into the Himalaya, was the more I, I developed these deep human connections with others, just stop, just listen, just you know, having that empathetic, empathetic um, you know, compassion, um, the more, not only the more did I was able to understand them, but the more it actually allowed me to understand myself. That's huge, isn't it? And you, you know, you're also working on um, helping people that don't have the advantage of being connected with nature get that experience. Um, is is that because you see the importance of it in the whole process? Yeah, I think nature is, is fundamentally an important. I mean, we are nature, right? So the more we separate ourselves from it, I think the more we kind of remove ourselves from what it means to be human. Um, so I think it's, it's important to kind of find that connection again, even if it's about sitting under a tree for, for, you know, a moment meditating within that, giving ourselves space, you know, it doesn't have to be like you're out in the wilderness. Um, I think it's just important to find and listen to, to nature again. I think you made a really important point there. It's like, you know, if you are already like, you know, the indigenous people, uh, even in, in the um, uh, Canada and the U S had these very rigorous vision quests. Mm-hmm. But they already lived in nature, so they had to really go to the extreme to be challenged by nature. And But some of us just sitting alone under a tree can be a challenge if it's something we've never experienced. How do yeah. you find your entry level? Uh, I think a lot of it, again, goes back to the very beginning of our car- beginning of our conversation about tapping into that feeling. Not try to think our way into it, but just to be. And the more we can just be with ourselves and the more we can just be present in nature. Again, when I'm out, even when I'm out hiking, just on a simple little hike on the trail, I'm not thinking about what I did last week. I'm not thinking about what I'm doing next week. Um, I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing later on that day. I'm just thinking about, you know, how is my foot landing on the root or the rock 
um, just kind of trying to be totally mindful, totally present in that moment. And I think the more we practice, it's a practice, right? The more we practice that, the more we can kind of unearth that, um, that connection again. And isn't that a heart connection? Um, that that deep appreciation for nature gives us the opportunity to have that same appreciation for ourselves and each other. That's right. Yeah, I think it's because heart, I believe it's our true nature. It's our true self, right? And the more we close that off, the more we remove ourselves from who we actually are. So the more we open that up and practice that and live within that, the more we're actually tapping into who we are as human beings. And I remember um, I explained some of this story to a friend uh, from the Taltan Nation, uh, First Nations uh, uh, nation over here in Canada. And he said to me, because um, I was talking to him about some of these synchronicities and these unique connections and so forth. And he said to me, what are you going to do to honor it? What are you going to do mm. to honor it? And Boy, I think that that's gratitude a, piece. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's a question we can all ask ourselves. Like, what are we doing? We're all here. What are we doing to honor these deep heart connections that we have the opportunity to, to experience. Um, Beautiful. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we're out of time. I could go on for another hour with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Gilda, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, it's been a fantastic conversation here. It has. Our, our guest this hour has been Michael Shaw, author of A Story of Karma, Finding Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. Michael supports local and international mentorship fundraising and educational initiatives, including the Education of Girls and Student Mentorship in Nepal, Outdoor Youth Leadership for Those Facing Barriers to Access Nature, and Holistic Indigenous Leadership Development in BC. His website, michaelshout.com. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. For more about me, my school, and the evolutionary tools we offer, visit my website, www.findyourpathhome.com. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world. Mm-hmm.